So as we uh, continue in the book of James, we are now finishing out the fourth chapter, one more to go, uh, three more sermons on this as we get to, to finish out James. I heard a pastor say um, he really loved preaching the book of James, but he was really glad it was only five chapters long because he wasn't sure he could handle a sixth chapter. And uh, I have to say, I, I agree with that. However, we're going to get into James today. So we got a little bit longer section than last week. Really, this whole section is um, all one big thought. All of James 4 is one big long thought, and we kind of chopped it up, and I'm glad we did, because 1 through 6 absolutely kicked me down and, and, and kind of beat me up. So 7 through 17, is not, he's not letting up the pressure. It's just maybe a slightly different type of pressure. So today, what James wants to do is he wants to get us in touch with reality, he wants us to understand the way things really work. Um, because honestly, we as Americans and as humans, we are very disconnected from what reality actually is. And I, I'm reminded of some of the television shows that are, are popular. Maybe I don't know if they're popular or not. I don't watch them, but I know of them. And these are the shows, these reality shows, which are contestants, where they try out, they do something. Whether it's a, a singing contest or a dancing contest, or a cooking contest, or something like that. I think there was even a comedian one as well. But all of these contests have something in common. These people get up, and they have these judges that really know their stuff, right? They've got professional producers and singers, or they've got professional cooks, very scary ones with British accents, right? And then they've also got dancers, these professional dancers and choreographers and professional comedians and so on. And invariably, especially early on in these reality shows, someone goes up there and they are terrible, right? You get the person who sings and as they're singing, you can hear the dogs barking, you have the person who, who cooks, and they go, well, you know, liver and cinnamon and baking dough, that sounds like a great holiday dessert. And the celebrity chef with his British accent can't wait to get it out of his mouth. Or the dancer who is doing nothing like dancing, just falling with style, right? Kind of. But even then, it's not really dancing. Or you get the comedian who, it's crickets the entire time they talk. Right? We get all of these, and, and, and many times the judges are anything but kind in their response, saying, this is reality. You're not funny. You can't cook. You can't dance. You can't sing. And what we see a lot of times is these individuals, because they had to have the courage to stand up there, they believe that they are, and they'll say something like, what do they know? They don't know what they're talking about. I'm going to be the next biggest thing. I'll be bigger than Elvis and the Beatles combined. I'll be the best chef ever. They'll have whatever, all over the place, restaurants. I'll be the best dancer, the biggest comedian. And they're not, because they are not in touch with reality. And these shows, these reality TV shows, for the one time, are actually really going to be real, in that those people can't do the thing that they're trying to do. So what James is doing here is James is taking us and saying, we have this view of reality that I can control something that I'm in charge of something. And James is saying, you, you got this all wrong. God's in charge of everything. And that's the correct way to see the universe. Not that I am in charge, not that I can run anything, not that I can even control anything. And so this is the same temptation that Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden. 
where the devil comes to him and says, hey, you can be just like God. And isn't that the temptation for all of us? We can have it exactly how we want it. We can reshape reality to fit what I want. And you see the connection there with where we were last week with these desires at war within us. So James wants us to bring us into touch with reality. So here is your main point, your big idea. The genuine Christian, remember we're talking about what it means to actually be a follower of Christ. The genuine Christian humbly submits to the reality of God's sovereign control of everything. Humbly submits. Now, I chose those words very, very much on purpose because it's not just enough to submit, but it's also the heart behind it. And so a genuine Christian is going to submit to God's control, but not begrudgingly. Not, oh, okay. Instead, it's going to be, yes, I, I, it's, this is really real, and I'm coming into line with it. So the context we see in this passage, if you, when we read verse 7, it said, submit yourselves therefore. That therefore connects back to verse 6. Whenever we see the word therefore in the Bible, it's telling us because of what I just said. All right? And so verse 6 says, but he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So James is, is dealing with this submission. Submission shows that your humility is genuine. And humility shows that your submission is genuine. They go hand in hand. They have, they have to go hand in hand. So James is going to give us, what he's going to give us is he's going to give us the right way to do things and the wrong way to do things. The wrong way is out of touch with reality. The right way is in touch with reality. The, the right way says, I am not God. The wrong way says, I am God. The right way says, I have no control except for when I line up with what God's doing versus I have all the control and I control everything. So James is telling us how to be this submissive, humble individual. But James also understands that we, we, you know, we have short attention spans or we, we don't want to hear this. And so instead of starting with the problem and giving us, hey, guess what? Here's what you need to do. He starts with the medicine, the solution, the treatment and then says, this is what you do. He's really putting the, you have to have the truth before you do the action. The indicative versus the imperative. If you study your Bible, you know there's two different types of words. Indicative is, this is what you are. Imperative is now, this is what you do in response. And James does that here. He starts with, in verse, verses 7 through 10, he gives us our solution to the problem. So this will be our first point under our, our big idea. And this is the solution. He says, the, the, the thing you need, the medicine, the treatment that you need is repentance. Humble repentance. Don't even really need to say humble with the word repent because repentance itself has humility built into it. Repentance is saying, I am going the wrong direction. I'm going to turn and go the right. So 7 and 10 is James saying, this is what repentance looks like. Repentance is not a, I did it once when I was this age and therefore I'm fine. It's a continual thing. Martin Luther agreed with this when he wrote his 95 theses to start the Protestant Reformation, he wrote, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed that the entire life of the believer be one of repentance. And what number of thesis was that? 
It was the first one, and he did that on purpose. Because we need to see that we have to repent of our sins. We constantly are trying to be drawn to that falsehood. We want non-reality. We want this dream world that the devil's been selling from day one instead of reality, which is submission and humility before God. So verse 7, submit yourselves therefore before God. This is the first of 10 directives that he gives us. And, and what they are is, is they're showing us what repentance looks like. So if you don't see these in your life, you're not living a life of repentance. Instead, you're living a life of willful ignorance of reality. So first one, submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. There's the second one. And he will flee from you. If we wanted to summarize that, stop resisting God, start resisting the devil right? It's that, that picture of, I want to be submitting to God, not submitting to the devil. This term submit is a military term. It means to line up behind or lined up under. This is a word that Jesus used when he said, you should, kids should submit to their parents. It's what Paul says when he says, submit to the government or how the church should submit to Christ. It's also what Peter said when he said, servants should submit to their masters. This word submit has some, some baggage in our culture. It's, it's a word that is not popular. Uh, it's not something that you would find in any pop culture as something praiseworthy. But in the Bible, it is. And the reason in our culture, culture it says, I'm in charge, you do what I say. It's a top-down submission. In the Bible, it's a bottom-up submission. It is me saying, I recognize God's in charge. I'm going to willfully bow and submit to him, as opposed to, I'm in charge, you must submit to me. And then he, 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 he connects this with this resist word. This resist word is to stand firm in light of a charge. It's the enemy's charging at you. I'm going to stand and resist him. I'm going to fight back. It's the exact opposite of submission. It's the I'm going to stick up for it. And I love that James says the devil will flee. Not may flee. You know, some days he's having a bad day, so you might get a win. No, he's saying he will because ultimately, these two go hand in hand. When you're submitting to God, you are resisting the devil. When you're not resisting the devil, you're not submitting to God. They work together. And the more we resist the devil, the more we submit to God, the more the devil must flee. Now, this is not saying that you do this one time and it's all done. Well, I resisted the devil back on March 5th, 1998. He's never coming back. It's not the way it works. This is a constant, continual thing. This is a recognizing that the enemy is after me. Now, understand that this is not saying that the devil is personally tempting each and every one of you. The devil is one being. He's not omnipotent. He's not omniscient. But what, is, what they're using here is they're using this term devil, which actually is the word slanderer, which we'll get into what that means in a minute. It's this picture of the enemy, God's enemy is coming after you. And sometimes our own flesh is the enemy. Most of the time, the flesh is the enemy. So that's this idea of the devil has no real power. And then sandwich. Here's another one of those James sandwiches. We got the submit to God, resist the devil, draw near to God, right? So he wants us to understand how this all relates. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. There's not a better promise in the Bible than that. If I draw near to God, God will 
come near to me. Notice it's not what we would expect. It's not what we would expect. Just like with the prodigal son. When the prodigal son who had repented, he was running this way and he turned and came back. The father doesn't go, well, first you better grovel a little bit and you need to, you know, just show me a little bit of, you know, being sorry. No, the father runs to him. Same thing for us. When we draw near to God, he draws near to us. I picture it as a big hug from our heavenly father. This drawing near is this intimate love relationship. It's a lot like what we see in the book of Leviticus when the the priests would have to go to God. They had the privilege of drawing near to God in the temple. That's the same privilege we have now. Spurgeon wrote, once there was a great gulf between us and God, but Jesus bridged the awful chasm. So draw near. The road to God is open to all who believe in Jesus. Finally, note the encouraging promise. There is nothing about him casting us out, spurning us, or rejecting us. We will be received graciously and freely. The promise is emphatic. He will draw near to you. And what I like about what James does here is he gives us this picture, and he only tells one side of it because the other side is just as true, but there's a warning. So if the, war, if, if the promise is, if I draw near to God, he will draw near to me, then what's the opposite of that? If I don't draw near to God, he won't draw near to me. See what James is saying here is he's saying, you want to get closer to God? You draw closer to him and he will get closer. You want to get farther away from God? Just keep going. Now we all know that that's not always the case because I know there's people in this room who were not actively pursuing God and God did it like the, you know, to the baby kitten where you grab it by the scruff of its neck and you take it and you go over here is where you belong because that's how God saves people sometimes. He grabs us by the scruff of our neck, shakes us around a little bit and goes, you need to be over here. And I praise be to God because some of us need that. That's what he does. But once we're there, if we draw near to him, he's going to be even closer to us. And that's what the promise is. The same thing goes for the resisting the devil. If you resist the devil in the power of the Holy Spirit, he will flee from you. If you don't resist the devil, what's he going to do? Guess who's drawing near to you now? Guess who's in charge? Guess who you're submitting to? So you see the picture that James is giving us here. It's a back and forth. Now, James is practical. It's a practical book. He tells us how to do this, all with the idea that it starts with the heart and then it comes out from there. That was that faith and works discussion. But look at what he says. He says, we can respond when we draw near to God. We can, we can show this by our controlling our tongue chapter 1 and chapter 3, by taking care of the poor, chapter 1 and chapter 2, by growing in wisdom, chapter 1 and chapter 3, and then prayer, chapter 4, and then in 5, we'll see it as well. So James is practical, practical, practical. It's not enough to just be, hey, you know, believe the right thing, but there's actual legs to it. So this drawing near to God must be turning from sin. So if we're pursuing sin and we're going this direction towards sin, it's impossible for me to draw near to God. And that's where repentance comes in. Repentance means to turn and go the other direction. Prodigal son, we, I mentioned him just a second ago, running back to the father, the father runs out to see him. Where did the son have to go to find the father? Was it in the pigsty? No, it wasn't. It was when he left the pigsty and went a different direction. And that's exactly what we see. You, you, God will, you will not find God in the pigsty of your sin. 
You will find him in the glory of repentance. And so James makes this clear that there's two parts to the repentance. One is the outward and one is the inward. The outward is the things we do. Just like in the Old Testament, the people had to be cleansed. They washed themselves before they would go into the temple. Same with us. We must wash ourselves. Well, we wash ourselves with the Spirit doing it in us of the things that we're seeing. This is the outward things we do. Now, James is never going to let us off the hook with just the outward. He also says we must purify the inward, purify our hearts. This word purify means without division. It means without anything polluting it. And so this is the inward. This is the attitude that leads to the outward. Because see, here's the thing that, that we've learned in James. We probably already knew it, but James really gave us words for it, is that all of the things that I do with my body that are sin, so let's say I do 50 of them, there's 10,000 of them in my heart waiting to go. Because the heart is the root of the problem. And so James is saying, yes, we want to clean up the outside and stop sinning with our bodies and our mouths and our minds and our eyes but we have to get to the root cause, which is the heart. And so that's his point here as we move into this. So repentance is an attitude, but it always involves actions as well. And he gives us a picture of actions. Verse 9, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. I would recommend not using this as your Christmas card Bible verse this year. This is not a cheery verse to give out there. But there is hope in this verse. This wretched, miserable, grieving sorrow and this mourning, this lamenting and deep grief and this weeping, which means to wail loudly, is all in response to our sin. This is the response. As we are over here and you realize, I am choosing sin instead of my God who loves me. Oh, what a waste. Oh, Lord, I'm so far and we draw near to him, he draws near to us. The Spirit always wants to convict us of sin and lead us to Christ and discover his abundant grace, more grace, like we saw in verse 6, and realize how wretched we are. This word laughter here, uh, you know, people will go, oh, wait a sec, but I thought laughter was good. Laughter's the best medicine. We have all these things we'll say about laughter. It's not that kind of laughter. This kind of laughter here is kind of chortling and going, ha ha, yeah, I'll repent about this eventually. It's a sort of laughter that's, there's no real repercussions, I'm getting away with it. And this joy is not the usual use of the word joy. This is pretending that it's, everything's okay. See, these people that James is talking about are people who are not repentant. They don't have real joy. It's not real heartfelt laughter. Instead, it's, yeah, I'm getting away with it. This is great. See, people used to really fret over their sins. Our grandparents used to fret over their sins. A husband would snap at his wife or, or, or lash out in anger at his kids, not hitting them, but just with his words. A woman would be envious of her sister or her neighbors, or they would look at someone with a, with a mean face, and then they would doubt their salvation. And they would think, I can't go to church until I confess all these. I don't even know if I can take communion if, if I have all these sins. And we would go, those were sins? That's no big deal. You didn't murder anybody. You didn't, you know, you commit adultery. You didn't steal. See, we've lost our, our understanding that every single sin, every single one, whether it's a white lie, is a drop of poison enough to kill. 
drop of poison enough to kill and that we go and we do not have eternal life. That's how we have to view sin. And when we start ingesting all of that and we think, oh, I'm impervious, I'm fine, <laughs> it's not going to hurt me. I'm not sinning like so-and-so or I'm not doing that. We've, we've gotten wrong. We, we've seen it wrongly. We are out of touch with reality because reality says every sin, no matter how small, was what sent Christ to the cross in our place. And that starts to go, oh, wait, so you're saying that time that I just, you know, had this little small sin, that little teeny one was enough for Jesus to go to the cross? And Jesus says, yes, one sin, your smallest sin was enough for me to die on that cross. And then you have to understand that the joy that James is wanting here, he's not anti-joy. He wants us to have the joy of we are released. We are free. The burdens are gone. That's the joy that he wants us to have. Not this little pithy, oh, I feel good because I'm giving in to my pleasures. Or this little, I got to get away with it. Ha ha. He wants real joy. The biblical writers are very clear on this. Everybody will mourn for their sins. You have two options. You can mourn now and be comforted by God as he's drawn near to us. Or you can mourn later when Jesus returns. Remember the song, Joy to the World, we just sang? That's not a Christmas song. That's a second coming of Jesus song. And I love that we sing it at Christmas. I probably annoy my children when I say, did you know that this is not a Christmas song? Okay, fine. But at the same time, we're singing at Christmas. It's the start of the end, right? Jesus comes when he's born. The last days are coming. This is the last days. We're in it. And so people can either mourn right now and turn to Christ and he comforts and we have that relationship or they can put it off and then mourn at the day of judgment when they have to mourn for all of eternity. And that's the picture that we're given here. And that's what the, the Bible is clear on throughout. So having seen all of that, we get to verse 10 where James gives us the summary thing we're to do. And it's to be humble. We're to humble ourselves before the Lord. That means I look at myself lowly. I do not think too highly of myself. And then look at what the promise says. He will exalt. He will bring us up. Those who mourn at the judgment will continue to go lower and lower. Those who mourn now and are comforted by their Lord will be lifted up. They will be exalted. John Flavel, a, a Puritan writer, said, when the corn is nearly ripe, it bows its head and stoops lower than when it was green. When the people of God are near ripe for heaven, they grow more humble and self-denying. Paul had one foot in heaven when he called himself the chief of sinners and the least of the saints. So the closer we get to God and the more we are drawn near to him, the more we see, man, I am just so not as great as him. Why would I have ever thought that I was God when it's clear he is? As long as people exalt themselves, God will not exalt them. Again, it's that opposite is true as well as the truth. Humility is not passivity, but receptivity. It's not groveling before God and others. It's accepting truth. And the truth is this. The reason why God is a great lover of humility is because he's a great lover of truth reality. He made reality. It's his design. And when we go, nah, you know, I think I'm the greatest. We're living in a dream world. We're living a lie. 
Because ultimately, God is the greatest. He is the one. And if you think about it, we're never more like Jesus when we hum- than when we humble ourselves. Philippians 2.8, when it talks about Jesus humbling himself even to death on the cross, that humbling there, that word is the same word. So when we are humbled and say, I can't save myself, I'm going to turn from sin and turn to God, praise be to God, that's when you're most like Christ. And that's when you are saved. That's what humility does. So in summary of these first verses, 7 through 10, the lowly, the divine favor comes to us when we submit to God, when our soul is momentum is away from the devil and toward God. We are purified inward and outward. We mourn over our sins and we humble ourselves. When we are able to submit, even when it makes no sense, God is the most glorified. Because sometimes that's what happens. It doesn't make any sense why God would put us through certain things. That's when he's the most glorified when we say, but I trust him, but I know him. So that's the the first picture, this humility of, I don't know what's right, Lord. I submit to you and I joyfully do it. That's part of it. Now, James is going to give us two pictures of how sometimes we get this wrong. And then he's going to tie it back to the humility. So the first one is our tongue. We need to humbly submit by not using our tongue to judge. We need to humbly submit by not using our tongue to judge. Verse 11, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Why would he say do not do it? Because they're doing it. We do it. Notice he said brothers. You're going to see that word pop back up here. He's reminding us we're all family, okay? The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So what James is saying here is he's going, who are you? Who do you think you are? You're judging your neighbor. You're judging your brother. And you're saying, waste of space. Wrong. See, I thought, how does this fit? We were just talking about repentance, and now he's saying, don't do these things. Don't be the judge. It kind of didn't flow. One author said, the answer to to my question is that it possibly lies in James's understanding of what's involved in repentance. Repentance reverses a behavior that was so entrenched in our lives, it had become habitual and sadly even characteristic. And I think about it, um, when, when a baby is born, they don't have an accent. They learn it. And then that accent stays with them for the rest of their lives. Now, the man that I, I know who's in his 70s, and he's still got a British accent. He hasn't been in Britain for years, decades, a half a century. But yet he's got a British accent. Where did he get that? Well, he learned it. He heard it. And he kept going. Same thing goes for us when it comes to how we use our tongues. We love to use our tongues to attack. We love to use our tongues to put down. We love to use our tongues to stir up strife and disunity. Which is why James has been beating this drum over and over again. Now it's important, what is not being talked about here is calling someone out on their sin. James is not saying, hey, you know, you're sleeping with your girlfriend, you should stop that. That's not what this is talking about. This is what I was doing with the worship last week in my my analogy of myself. This is where I would say, you know what, this is garbage. I don't think it can glorify God. It's a waste of time. I'm going to do my own thing because my desires are what's most important. 
It's careless, derogatory, critical, slanderous accusations. Slander means to speak falsehood, to change a person's mind. The devil's name, the word devil in the Greek is the word the slanderer. He's the one that comes along and the Christian is following Christ. And he goes, yeah, but their heart's in the wrong. Yeah, but they sinned. Yeah, but, and all of that doesn't even count because Christ has covered us in his blood. Praise be to God. But yet that's what the slanderer, the accuser is trying to do. So this speaking ill of others, this boasting comes from jealousy. We saw that back in, in verses uh, earlier in this, in this chapter. We see it in the desires in verses one and two and three. We see pride. All of this is that warring within us. When we slander, when we speak ill of fellow believers, we destroy communion. We destroy the ability to have relationship. And we ultimately speak against God's law. See this loving your neighbor as yourself. James has a really big, it's so important to him. This is a absolutely crucial thing for him to loving your neighbor as yourself. Who are you to judge is what he says. So James's flow of thought is like this. Person speaks against his brother is speaking evil against the law, which means he is acting as judge. I'm saying I'm the judge. I am the standard. And if you don't meet my standard, you are in the wrong. So that person, his essence, is usurping God's role. See, the problem and the, the, the three parts that we're looking at here, every single one, it's saying, I know better than God. I know what's right. I am the decider. And when we do that, we are taking God's sole prerogative of God, which is to judge, and we are saying, no, I am. Again, Jesus, James is not saying, don't call out sin, He's saying, don't rebuke someone in jealousy or rebuke someone in the fact that my desires are not met. See, how we treat others reflects how we view God. Our behavior towards others is to be determined by him and his law, not us and our desires. And ultimately, true submission reminds us who we are. When I submit and I say, not my will, but yours done, Lord, I'm remembering who I belong to. See, essential to knowing who I am is me knowing whose I am. It's not enough for me to just say, well, I know who I am, but I need to know who I belong to. So the Lord has made us. He's asking us to humble ourselves in repentance and humble ourselves in how we speak of others. But he also recognizes there's one glaring thing that we think we control, and he wants to point it out so that we make sure we understand that we are not God. And that's our future plans. So the third thing we see is we are to humbly submit by not being arrogant about the future. I think this is especially timely right now because COVID has disrupted all of our plans, right? We've, we've all seen that. Now, the thing about it is, is that, you know, we, we've responded in different ways. There's mourning, there, there's, 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 there's anger, there's depression. There's other people who've chosen different paths. Sometimes we release our plans. Sometimes we make multiple plans. So if this one doesn't work, well, at least we've got this one and this one and maybe this one. But have we stopped to think that maybe the reason why COVID hit and the, the reason why all of this has become so upsetting to us is that are we stopping to go, what's God doing in this? What's our base assumption for all of our plans? We go, well, you know, uh, I, this job works because it makes more money for me, better retirement, 
Or it, it, it makes me feel like I'm accomplishing more. Or, hey, I'm going to marry this person because she looks really good on my arm. Or she completes me. Or you know what? I'm in love. Or how about, hey, we're going to go on vacation. Well, okay, where? I don't know. Disneyland sounds fun. I don't know. Universal Studios. I don't know. Europe. Have you stopped and gone, well, what does the Lord want me to do? Now, we, we hear that, and even as I say that, I know that many of us just use that kind of contritely, and we just go, eh, yeah, I think the Lord doesn't care. Well, have you asked him? Because James is saying the exact opposite. James is saying the Lord does care. There's not a single thing that we do that is outside of his plan. So maybe before we think about where we're going and what we're doing, who we're marrying, all of that, we need to stop and consider, well, what is the Lord doing? What does the Lord want for us? See, Augustine, the, the ancient theologian said, love God and do as you please. This is the man mantra of all Christians. Love God and then do whatever you please as long as you're loving God. See, we flip that. We say, do as you please and say that you love God. Do as you please and sprinkle some prayers or a church attendance or, you know, a couple of little things here and there that sound religious. Do whatever you want and then God will bless it. That's not the way it works. It's do what God wants and he is going to exorbitantly bless it. This leads us into verse 13 where we get the correct view of ourselves. He says, come now. This is him going, listen up, pay attention. He says, pay attention. You who say today or tomorrow will do such and such, go to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Look at that. Verse 13, he says, we will go here. We will spend money here. We will trade and we will make a profit. He, he presumes to say, I'm in charge of what's going to happen to me. I'm in charge of where I go. I'm in charge of how long I'll be there, what I will do there. And I'm in charge of making the money. Man, I wish there's a lot of people in this world that knew that they, if they could just turn it on and make a profit, they would do it. There's a lot of people that can't make a profit. He's saying, well, I know exactly what's going to happen. I'm going to go there and I'm going to make a ton of money. Are you sure? Because I don't think that's exactly what the way it works. Note the future tense here. Compare it to verse seven, where he says the devil will flee. He's saying it's done. And here, this person is saying, oh, well, I control this. These things will happen. You just watch. These wills are not guaranteed. He's thinking he knows the future. And, and, and this, is, this is indicative of, of everything we see in our world. There are over 400,000 books on planning on Amazon. Financial planning, calendar planning, your kid's life planning, all of it. And that's not even including all the people that we pay to tell us how to plan. There's whole businesses based on here's how you plan, here's how you financially plan, here's how you structurally plan, here's how you schoolwork plan, and so on. But see, James is not just against planning. That's not what he's saying, because the Bible's not against planning. Because in you know, Proverbs 6, a very famous passage, go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having a chief, ruler, or officer, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. James is not saying, don't plan. Okay, you know, the average high schooler has that down. Don't plan, just go with the flow. That's not what James is saying here. James is saying, don't plan wrongly. Don't plan in your rebellion, plan in your submission. 
This person that lives and does not plan is not regarding the providence of God nor the sovereignty of God. Now, these are big words. I want to dig into these just for a second. The providence of God is God's purposeful design of time. Time is going to go this way. There's no chance it's going that way or that way. It is going the way God says. This is the providence of God. It is as determined as two plus two equaling four for all of eternity. The providence of God is going to happen. If you want a little more on that, I have a preview for a book by John Piper out there. You can grab it. It's the first couple chapters. It's really in-depth. The guy wrote a book that's like 800 pages about it, so I think he knows what he's talking about. But this providence is, here's how it's going to go, and there's nothing that can stop it, because God is sovereign. And that word sovereignty means God has no limits. See, we struggle with this word because we're a democratic republic. We have presidents who are checked by the other branches of government and then checked by the states, and then checked by the local government. And we have all of this whatever. And the president thinks he's got a lot of power, but he really doesn't. Not compared to a king. And I'm not talking about kings like nowadays, where there's parliament, and then there's all these other things. I'm talking about go back in time, 300, 400 years, and the king is sovereign. If he says, off with the head, you're done. There's no appellate court. This sovereignty idea only finds its perfection in God. If God says it, it happens. If God wants it, it it goes. And see, what we're doing is we're doing the exact opposite of this. We're taking our life choices and we're going, I can decide, I'm going to choose. We're not even taking into account that God has a plan and God is in control. We're thinking we are. We're becoming practical atheists. Instead, we're to bow our heads, open our hands and say, Lord, here, take my plans. They are in your hands. I'm just acknowledging reality. See, James could say, could have said, don't plan at all. That's not what he says. He says plan, but make sure you're doing it in light of God's plan, not yours. Because what is your life? He says we're like a mist. A mist is short, it's fragile, and it's not in control of anyone. Have you ever seen how long, breathing out on a cold day, how long it's there? It's gone in a second. You're going to have to have a really quick camera to catch any of it. Not only that, it's fragile. You can cut your hand right through it. You can't even touch it. And then third, have you ever tried to catch your breath? You have no control over it. It's like, oh, I got it. And then you open it, it's gone. Same thing for our lives. Our lives are but a mist. They're this little teeny thing that we think is so grand when in actuality, it's not. We have no control. So this leads to the correct view of God and our plans we find in verse 15. Instead, You ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So this is the future events are all in God's control. There is nothing outside of God's control. If he wills it, it happens. If he doesn't will it, it doesn't happen. Now we verbalize this and and we say, you know, yeah, this is a, yeah, I get it. God's in charge. But until it reaches our heart and we, we live like that, we aren't living the authentic, genuine Christian life. Because the authentic, genuine Christian life is my plans are always in light of what God's planning. This is not a mindless formula, kind of like adding on, um, you know, something at the end of a, a wish list for Santa Claus. Instead, it is actually changing your heart. It's not a, I want a brand new Mercedes Benz, if the Lord wills it. And that's like, okay, God, go. That's not what that is. Instead, it's this is where your heart needs to be. 
Not only that, it's not fatalistic where we go, well, God's going to wish it. So, uh, you know, if God really wanted me to stop, I'd, he'd zap me. He'd stop me. You know, I'm right here, God. Okay. You didn't want me to stop. Okay. I'll do it. That's not what this is saying either. Instead, this is an attitude change from the heart. It's my heart is in line with God and the, his plans are never thwarted. You will always succeed if you're in God's plan, if you're following God's plan. Because the Bible is not worried about effective planning. That's what a lot of those books I, I referenced a minute ago were about, was how to effectively plan. How do we get my plan going? The Bible doesn't worry about that. It spends zero time on how to effectively plan. Instead, it says this is the only way to plan is to have more of God in it. It's the only way to plan. Proverbs 16, 9 um, says this, the heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. 1921, many are the plans of the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. God is sovereign. Whether you acknowledge it or not, he is in charge. This is really real. This is reality. James says, time to get in touch with reality. Have you met? Because I'd like to introduce you to the reality that God is sovereign. God is in control. Verse 16, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Now, we have to understand in the Bible, it's not the boasting that's the problem. It's what you're boasting in that's the problem. Because Paul does this. He'll say, I boast. Well, Paul, James says not to boast. That's not what James says. James says, boasting in your own power is evil. Boasting in God's power is. So it looks like this. Me boasting and going, well, yeah, I did that. That's pretty amazing. Or going, hey, you know what? Look what the Lord did in me. Actually, I just thought of an example. It's not in my notes. I'm going to share it with you. This is a free one. The other, other group didn't get it. I'm going to share it with you. I remember when I was in high school and I was a javelin thrower. And uh, my senior year, I came into the senior year, and I was ranked number one in the entire state. The year before, I'd gotten third place, and both of the dudes who beat me graduated. So I was like, yeah, I'm going to win. Final game of my football career at my high school I was at, I shredded my knee, tore every single ligament. It was nasty. Six months later, I was able, through the Lord's saving me, like literally, there's a, there's a nerve in my leg that wraps around a ligament that I tore in half and somehow the nerve that was spiled around it stayed there so I can move my foot. If that nerve had been cut like it should have been based on the laws of physics, I should be in a boot and I shouldn't be able to move my foot. But praise be to God, he saved it. So six months later, I'm able to throw the javelin. I go to the state meet and I win. I get first place. And afterwards, I got interviewed by the Oregonian. One of only two times in my life I got interviewed by the Oregonian. We'll talk about the other one some other time. This time, he said, oh, what's the deal with your brace on your leg? I had this big old gnarly space age brace. And I went, yeah, I tore my knee up in, in playing football, tore every ligament. And he went, oh, how'd you deal with that? And I went, well, I worked really hard and I had a good physical therapist and I just, I'm just tougher than the average person. And I did all my, and I just bragged on me. At that moment, I had a perfect opportunity to say, you know what? Here's a really amazing story. My legs should be a stump. I should not be able to move it, but praise be to God, he did that. But instead, I boasted in me. I boasted in what I did, not boasting in what he did. And that's what this is talking about right here. This is talking about, am I boasting in me or am I boasting in what God has done? 
This goes right back to that proud, verse 4, 6, um, chapter 4, verse 6. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You know, Frank Sinatra had a song that said, I did it my way. I'm not going to sing it. You're welcome. But, you know, old blue eyes, that's not true. You got it wrong. You didn't do it your way. You did it the way God planned it. See, this arrogance is a superficiality that says, I am able to do what I want. It's my life, and I will do what I want. But that's not reality. John, 1 John 2.16 uses the same word, that, that word arrogance. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. That word pride is the word arrogance from our, our verse. It's saying, this is mine. I have this life. It's mine. I get to do what I want with it. I can reshape it. I can remake it however I want. God says, no, that's lies. That's falsehood. Don't believe the lie. Believe the truth. Because 1 Corinthians 4 7 says, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you've received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Bragging in yourself. So that takes us to verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him is a sin. James has urged his audience to take God's will into account for all of the planning. And to fail to do that is to sin. It's to not do the good thing. So remember, we talked about there's a right way and that's in touch with reality. That's the good. That word good is that word kalos, which is beautiful, where we get calligraphy from. And then the wrong way, the evil way is sin. When you know what the right thing to do and you choose to not do it, that is sin. So submitting to God in humility is the right thing to do. And when we don't choose it, we are sinning. So there are two ways to engage with the world. You got the right way and the wrong way. The humble way and the prideful way. The with God or the dream that we are God. As friends of God or as friends of the world. When we submit to God and draw near to him, he draws near to us. See, humility is not optional. It is essential. It is the key characteristic of what it means to be a follower of Christ, to be a genuine Christian. So I want to leave you with a quote here, and then we'll do communion together. This quote is, um, it's powerful, but it, it hits you right in the gut, and I, I think it fits. If you will not submit to God, your faith is a lie. Your hope is a delusion. Your prayer is an insult. Your peace is a presumption and your end will be despair. But praise be to God that when we draw near to him in submission, he draws near to us. So that does not have to be us. We can draw near to him. So we're going we're gonna to celebrate communion here now as we remember that the only way possible for us to draw near to God is to submit humbly to him and recognize that I'm not the one who did this. It's the Lord. So now as we celebrate communion together, I pray that we remember that we were cleansed by Jesus's blood and we reaffirm our hope that his life, death, and resurrection will save us. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that as we look here at communion and we spend this time remembering that Lord, you would be glorified. We thank you for your son's life, death, and resurrection in our place. 
And now, Lord, we humbly admit we need more of you. We want to draw near to you through this so that you'll draw near to us, Lord. In your name, amen. So the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, for what I received from the Lord, from what I received from the Lord, what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. And he concludes, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord Jesus, we just want to remember and exalt you for this amazing gift. Lord Jesus did not stay in the manger. He lived a life in our place, and then he died the death in our place and rose again and ascended to heaven to picture for us what it will be like when you return. Lord, we just want to rise up underneath that and exalt you and praise you for it. Lord, humble us, give us your spirit to help us submit and draw near to you. In Jesus' name, amen.